Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. The field of leadership coaching, if you haven't noticed, has been expanding with many different types of offerings provided by just as many different kinds of approaches. And it is hard to say that this is not needed. Having both taught in graduate professional programs, having volunteered in different organizations, and having watched the styles and performance of various people in charge, I can say there is clearly a need for more leadership training. Mm -hmm. I often joke that leadership is taught in MBA programs because, after all, they're not. Perhaps this is a bit too harsh because people in management positions can be beset by all sides, by demands and limitations. And this is especially true for our dear friends in middle management who just feel surrounded by mm. everybody at all times and not able to please anybody. And in some fields of work, the situation is even more challenging if leadership wasn't challenging enough. For instance, those who are working in engineering fields might get next to no training on how to work with one of the most complex machines there is, which is people. And as sociologists and anthropologists, we can attest that people are, in fact, complicated. While the people in these positions might want to help those who work for them, they probably have never been shown how. Furthermore, they're likely not into what is technically called the foofy, meaning that they want to cut to the chase in terms of how to create change and not necessarily reside in the theory and or the feelings of what's taking place. Mm. And to help that out, or we might say, how do we cut to the chase and avoid the foof? No foof. We have Jennifer. No foof. No foof out no here. Um, so to help us cut through this idea, or how do we get hashtag no foof? We have Jennifer Chapman from Ambition Leadership on the podcast today to help us think through this conundrum. Jennifer focuses her efforts on STEM managers, the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics managers and leaders in these areas, which is a really unique niche that she is well suited to take on. So besides being married to an engineer, which helps for the E of STEM, she's also worked with the IRS or the Internal Revenue Service, your friends down the road, as well as the National Science Foundation, the Red Cross, and many more organizations. Now, one thing that these organizations have in common is that they turn more like cruise ships than jet skis, i.e. Mm. they're a little bit slow to change. A little bit. A little bit. The other thing is that they're made up of people, unlike fiberglass boats, and especially people who want a purpose in their work and to, have, and to see their work have impact. We talk with Jennifer about how the most effective leaders are the ones who empower their employees. And we also explore the unique aspects of working with data-driven and task-focused sectors. Now, this helps us understand, and Jennifer walks us through this idea of how mindset often is the primary obstacle to making changes and how more resources need to be devoted to training. And finally, we will dive into how people matter, because these are the ones that are going to make things happen. How do we support our folks and build leadership and change from internal parts? And also when designing leadership and employee experiences, your people need to come first. That's just also first and foremost. So really great conversation. We're super excited to share with you. So let's dive on in. Sweet 
then again, I never know if anybody reads anything I write. I just feel like sometimes when I'm writing blogs or doing any of that work and putting it on LinkedIn, I'm just kind of throwing it out into the ether yeah. and maybe it sticks and maybe someone looks at it and maybe somebody derives value of it. I have no idea. It's almost like teaching class. Did they get anything out of it? I don't know. We'll, we'll cross our fingers and hope so. Do you find that as well? I mean, do you ever wonder about that with all the content you create? I you know, do. I go through phases where I do a lot and I feel really confident about it. And then I go through other phases where I think, okay, is this the best use of my time? And I focus on doing other things. Uh, I will say the things I've put on LinkedIn have been great for me to reconnect with people from my past. I haven't seen new clients from what I've posted on LinkedIn, but I have gotten clients from people I've known previously so it's almost like a professional facebook <laughs> yeah you're looking, at, you're looking at past relationships on link past work relationships on linkedin and reconnecting well no, like i so like let's say i put out an article about uh handling conflict in the workplace then i like i had a colleague i worked i was her manager 15 years ago who she's gone on to do other things. And then she saw my article and wrote to me and said, came across this. This is exactly what I'm dealing with right now. I'd love to talk to you more about coaching. Like that, that kind of stuff has happened. Did you ever think that you'd be saying somebody I managed 15 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's <laughs> No, I, I, I follow some of my former students on Instagram, like way former students. I first started teaching in 1999. I'm like, oh, look, you have families and they're driving now. You know, you start. Yeah. To, you know, you, you, I think part of living in this virtual world is, you know, the time both compresses and extends in terms of people from our past who we would never come across again. We see them go through their lives, professional or personal. And then also, everything seems to be sped up because we're constantly getting this flood of new information all the time when we open up our phones or computers. Yep. And uh, one of my college roommates just became a grandma. <laughs> oh my God. Holy cow. <laughs> I guess it's biologically possible, but it doesn't feel like it should be temporary pos temporarily right? possible. Yes, I know. It's so funny. And I, she got married young and had her kids and now they're having kids and I got married late. So I actually, I could be the grandma of my two biological children. And that kind of weirds me out sometimes. I know. Do you, I mean, it's as, as we were talking before we had, I hit record, you know, this, you have this new article where folks can text accelerate to 411321, get this article on how to turn information that you get into your brain into action, basically, right? How to mm -hmm. go, as you said, from listening to implementing. I mean, as we kind of develop this area of coaching, I want to ask you about, because that's what you, what you do is leadership coaching. How do you manage all of these different channels? Do you, do you have a strategy? Because I, I don't know that I've ever thought about, you know, text this number to text this word to this number and get this article, which sounds mm -hmm. pretty cool, but it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> so I'm like, should I be doing that? Do I need to, do I need to have a text, uh, a word to a number thing? Do I need to look that up after we're done recording? Am I missing out here? Is that like the magic bullet to getting engagement? 
yeah, I don't know if it's the magic bullet, but I, I became acquainted with this awesome person who does some business coaching and she, her name's Wanda and she has the company catch words and she's the one who created this program that allows people to, you pick your, your catch word, which mine's accelerate and it sets you up with a number. And then she's the one who gets after me to write fresh content and, and so on. Uh, it, it's been an interesting experience for me. I can't say it's been like this amazing marketing tool yet, but I, it's also just funky times with the pandemic and, and all that. You know what? what I, I tend to trust my gut and I've tried a lot of different things and sometimes I'll invest more in a blog. Sometimes, right now I'm really focused on doing this. I'm finding people are just really busy and have good intentions, but don't always follow through on things that they find interesting. And this one with being able to just text a word to a six digit number on your cell phone has seemed like the easiest thing yet for people to reach out and get in touch without feeling any pressure to engage directly with me. Yeah, it makes sense. Did, how much time did you put into choosing Accelerate? Did you have to like shift F7 in Microsoft Word or something and kind of go through all the options and figure, did you, did your focus group test it? Did you... I did not focus group <laughs> test. Accelerate, uh, I, I was talking to Wanda about how my, what my passion around helping people not just talk about great ideas and the kind of leader they want to be, let's, how do I help them apply? And I talk, I used the word accelerate as I was explaining, and she's the one who said, that's your word. Oh, wow. Everyone needs a Wanda. Everyone needs a Wanda. And, and for, I know it, I was looking up the area of leadership coaching and it seems pretty crowded. I don't know how crowded it is as a growing profession, but it also seems like there's a lot of people moving in this space around change management or longstanding concept of workplace or organizational culture in this quote unquote leadership idea of, and coaching, right? So how do you find the opportunity to differentiate in this really crowded or increasingly crowded marketplace of leadership coaching and trying to, as a person who has her own company, really establish a niche or an mm -hmm. area that you can say, yeah, this is what I do, you know, best among all the others who are doing, you know, similar things. That's good. Good question. I, I would say there are two key things that differentiate me. One is with coaches, there are some people who have whatever kind of background and they decide, you know, I want to do coaching. I want to help people. And they are really passionate about that, but they don't personally have any leadership experience or very little. And with me and the coaches that I use in my business, the one thing that makes us different is we've all had personal leadership experience. I have been a frontline supervisor. I have been a middle manager. I've worked in nonprofit. I've worked in corporations. I've done consulting work for the government, you know, so across the sectors. And 
while I'm not advising people, knowing and having sat in these issues of what do you do with a poor performer? What do you do when you're short staffed or there's a huge change going on in your organization that's out of your control? And, and being able to relate to those experiences really informs the kinds of questions I ask and the, and the kinds of issues that I know they're, that they're dealing with that, they, that my clients might not otherwise be able to articulate. And then the second thing that differentiates me is I'm a very practical, tactical coach. I'm not into the foofy. <laughs> There's a lot of foofiness. Foofy. Is that a technical term <laughs> in, in the leadership that's field? Technical term. <laughs> um, and so I, my clients like that instead of talking a lot about theory or doing you know, spending all of our time on centering exercises or whatever it might be, like, let's talk about the issue. Let's see what underlining causes there might be. And then let's talk about how to handle it. And, and let's get to the point of creating some different habits and change. And my clients tend to see results uh, fairly quickly because I get laser focused like that. And I, t- I tend to work a lot with of other very intelligent, task-focused people like engineers, scientists, and researchers, uh, financial analysts, and economists. Just you know, people are like, cut the bowl and like, let's just get to work here. I love working with that kind of a client. So if, if I text accelerate to that number and I act now, I'm not going to get the ambition coaching leadership crystal, which I can put on my desk to help enhance my energy. <laughs> And leadership. That's not. That's not going to be something that's going to apply to your demographic. The leadership. No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> well, you know, just throwing it out there as an idea. I, I, I do appreciate this. I, you know, this point about being a middle manager. I've been, I've, I've been department chair, which is as close to middle management as you're going to get in academia. Although um, I tell people, as as a as a department chair. I have uh, zero carrot and no stick, which makes my job really easy because there's like literally nothing I can do, but deliver messages, which was amazing because I had, you know, I had no accountability. If my dean said, well, why, why don't your faculty do X, Y, or Z? I'm like, I don't know. You, you, you talk to them and see what you can do with them because of tenure and other things, right? There's, it's a different culture, mm-hmm. but I do think that middle management is overstressed and underappreciated in the larger discourse of organizations, right? Because you have, you know, C-suite leadership and the idea of top-down, and then you have people talking bottom-up, but no one or few people are talking what I call middle-out, which is this kind of middle management layer where folks are tasked with implementing, but provided none of the resources to do so very often. I agree with that. Absolutely. I would also say that middle group has a really hard time with role clarity. The, when you know it's when you're a frontline supervisor, you're all about making sure the work gets done. You're directly managing these people. And I have a number of clients who then get promoted into that middle management and they're not sure, well, where's all of my tactical work? that I'm supposed to be doing. Well, 
most of your time's not doing that. Well, then what am I supposed to be doing? And you go from feeling like I, you know, I was so accomplished and I checked all these things off of my to-do list every day. And now I'm just kind of hanging out there, not really sure what I'm supposed to do. And I find it just takes a whole different kind of initiative to really do that middle managing well, because it's so much less prescriptive than the other levels. When I think of one of the things you're tapping into as a sociologist, I think about this a lot is I just had this conversation with a colleague. It's hard to change a system from within a system, right? And it's hard to change a system following the bureaucratic processes, prescript structures that are in place uh, that without just use this overly used term disrupting those, it's hard to make significant shifts. You can tweak around the edges and there's nothing wrong with that, but you can't necessarily change with a capital C thing. So it makes me think if you've ever wanted to follow the Bobby Knight school of coaching with some of your clients and uh, use more aggressive methods <laughs> of, you know, being vocal around, you know, you need to do this. And, you know, I know you're Indianapolis. When I think of coaching in Indiana, I think of Bobby Knight who had a, shall we say, an aggressive style of uh, voicing direction versus, you know, taking more of a, I don't know, a, a, a hand-holding approach in coaching and leadership to try to help people along versus at some point saying, look, if you don't do these things, everything we're talking about is not going to happen. You know what I mean? Does that make right. sense? Uh, <laughs> yes. No, yes, it makes sense. I've been, uh, my brain's at all these different crossroads of um, how to, in what way do I want to respond? And what, like, one thing I talked to my clients about that came to mind when, when you just mentioned that is that I sometimes with change on a small scale, it's like being on a jet ski. And it's really easy to change direction. It's you on this jet ski. Maybe you got somebody in the back and it's not hard. But then you work your way up to a cruise ship and these large organizations who've had this culture in place for a long time. You can't just turn a cruise ship without a lot of thought and a lot of action and time. And even then you don't see results for a while and that can be really frustrating. So I encourage my clients to look at what's in their control. And there, a lot of times those larger systemic issues really are not. And it's a matter of, okay, so what are you empowered to do and how do you, how do you focus on, on that? And then the leaders that I see who are most effective are the ones who empower their employees to also take charge what's in your control and letting go of those things that aren't. Yeah, I really love that because I'm, now my brain's firing. I've been reading some science fiction. I'm not a big science fiction person, but I've been reading some science fiction stuff, just brain candy before I go to sleep at night. And one of the things in the science fiction books is when a, a, a spaceship is accelerating and it needs to slow down, it literally flips somehow and fires its rockets now in the opposite direction so that it decelerates. Hmm. Okay. Cause it's not like you have the friction of air to help slow you down. And so you got to flip the ship in order to, you know, stop. 
And it also reminds me, this is like a long, weird thread, but there's a really nice book called Turn the Ship Around um, by a former uh, submarine captain who literally had to flip the organizational roles in his submarine because he was put in command of a submarine he knew nothing about. He knew nothing about the mechanics of it, about the, the nature of it. He wasn't trained on it. And he had to empower his people that typically would have to follow him. He had to empower them to lead because there was literally no other choice because he didn't have the knowledge. Well, he had to, he, he could have instructed them on things he knew nothing about. And there's plenty of leaders who do that, but he made a decision <laughs> to, I'm going to empower you to make these decisions because you know more about this than I do. You're closer to this than I am. So I'm going to empower you to do it. And it was literally turning the ship around, like in a science fiction movie that flipped the nature of the, you know, line of command. And it led the ship, the submarine from being the most underperforming to the most overperforming submarine in the fleet. I love that story. And every time you say turn the ship around, I've got Gloria Stefan singing, turn the beat around in my head. There you go for your next (laughs) text accelerate. And uh, you can, maybe it's your next video is is moving around the, moving around with your clients to Gloria Estefan and uh, you know, making, turning the ship around, but the beat around. I love it. Two new products that came out of this. Right, right. (laughs) Um, I I love that story. And I that reminds me of a few clients I've worked with over the last couple of years who've had uh, tragic family events or 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 even just let's talk about COVID that we find we have leaders who unexpectedly are out of the office for days and weeks and. Um, I a lot of these clients previous to this, whatever has come up in their lives, have been worried about, you know, is my team performing enough? Would they, you know, how would they do? And and a lot of leaders are reluctant to delegate what wouldn't get done the way I want it to be done, or I don't know if they're ready for that. And we get put in these situations where sometimes we just don't even have a choice, but to let it go and, and see what happens. And I have to say, for the most part, my leaders are pleasantly surprised at what their staff really are capable of when the leader has to take a back seat and say, you know, go on. And it's just, it's been a really interesting test to try. And, and for, you know, for those listening right now, I would say, you know, don't just put things on pause when you take your PTO. Don't just assume that everything's going to fall apart if you're not there. Really take your team to task and if nothing else, you'll find out where the gap knowledge gaps are when you're out of the office. But for the most part, people are happy to, to just pick on up and keep on going. One of the things I, I teach an MBA course right now in employee experience, and one of the things I'll say to students is, and I'll say to clients or whoever will listen, is that if you, if you call people managers, they will. And you know, is that the role that you want these people to perform? is to manage versus lead or facilitate mm-hmm. or empower or support? Or is there another word? And it also makes me think, I was curious your opinion on this, you know, in terms of educational programs, I work at a business school, whether in MBA or undergraduate business or wherever, or even professional development, are there things we're getting wrong 
in preparing people for these roles in their educational process, wherever they're getting that, that education, you know, what should we be doing more of, or what should we be better at in terms of preparing people for what it is you're describing? Uh, in, in my opinion, I find that, especially since I work in this very, in very task focused sector, sector is very data driven, that the problem is, these people haven't gone to MBA school. These people haven't sought out or been given the opportunity to learn about management leadership in their schooling. And so they just end up out on their own trying to figure things out as they go when they're getting promoted. They're fun promoted because of their functional expertise. And so what I think needs to happen with um, higher education is that we need to see more integration with these key business skills into the other majors. Right. Why, why are we only training the people who want to lead? Why, and not thinking about all the people who are going to have to lead and they just have to make it up as they go. Yeah. It reminds me of when I became department chair mm -hmm. and uh, I became department chair because uh, no one else wanted to. Mm -hmm. And um, I was given zero, like literally zero training on how to be a department chair. Yeah. It's kind of funny, um, but that's not surprising because I was also giving zero instruction on how to teach before becoming a teacher. So it kind of is in keeping with academia. Usually it's the person who wants the job the least, but whose turn it is to become the manager of the department. And it, I, I, you know, I appreciate this idea of functional expertise. It's like, well, you're a good engineer. You can be a manager. Um, those are kind of different skill sets. Absolutely <laughs> different skill sets. And then what happens is they get in and some of it's like sink or swim. And the ones that sink end up then getting negatively impacted on their career trajectory. Like, oh, well, we put you in this management position and you're Direct reports aren't happy and you're having huge attrition rates and, you know, people are complaining about X and Y. And, and it just doesn't make sense to me that you would just throw somebody into that role, provide them no support, and then criticize them for not being successful. And especially in the sector you're in, because I was, I was reading your website at Ambition Coaching and thinking about, you know, engineers and, and you know, the, the, I wonder if the phrase engineer people skills is an oxymoron because, uh, you know, I know engineers, some of my best friends are engineers. So I know engineers, uh, but at the same time, they're not necessarily, it's not part of the training to engage with humans necessarily. Correct. <laughs> and so Absolutely. then we're, we're confronted with another human being. It can create uh, some complications in terms of how they have to interface with that person in a constructive way. Yes. I'm trying to be very tactful about our engineer listeners. You're doing, you're doing a fantastic <laughs> job. And, uh, and I'm married to a mechanical engineer. So uh, that's pretty funny to have my work and personal lives combined. Or, yeah. And that way <laughs> I would say, with the engineers is there's typically one right answer or a clear best answer. It's all about processes. It's all about the data. And what gets challenging is to accept that 
other people have ideas that might not be the same as your own and could have validity. And that's where I find just a lot of communication challenges and conflict when somebody's questioning why their approach, you know, is better than another one. Um, I have a lot of clients who are very strategic thinkers, and they're also very task focused. And when you get that combination, competency is huge. So a trigger is somebody questioning their competency. They will mm. get so you know upset about you know you call me incompetent, and then they also tend to walk around putting people into competent and incompetent buckets. And I, I had a coaching session yesterday with a client who, if you if you're like him, he like people had glowing things to say about his brilliance, about so much of what he brings to the workplace. But if you don't think like him and he's therefore labeled you incompetent, yeah. like people are lining up to like find someone else to work for. And, and it was really interesting going through a um, person with him to help him see this is how you think, this is how you prefer to do things. But then there are other people who like this way. And this is, these are the people you tend to not get along with, but it's really eye opening because I like, I love this stuff. Right. I love this stuff. If you would have told me when I was 12 that I could have this as my job, I would have known then like, yes. But for somebody who has spent their lives with math and equations and, you know, science, just they've never thought about what is it like to think differently? It's just a total foreign concept. That's fascinating to me because, I mean, I, I stopped doing math at pre-calculus when I was introduced to imaginary numbers. And I asked my teacher, <laughs> yes. I asked my teacher, well, can I have an imaginary answer then? He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, well, you're just making stuff up, it seems. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, if you're just making, first making up numbers now, it seems like anything goes. And I wasn't wrong, come to find out later on, if you look at, you know, theoretical mathematics or abstract mathematics or any, you know, even, you know, looking at complexity theory in terms of how physics thinks that, you know, some of the laws that we have are no longer laws when you enter quantum states. I mean, you know, not, I, I can use, drop these words and sentences to sound smart, but I don't know what any of them mean. But the point being that there is a lot more ambiguity in this world of believed hard facts and that engineers introducing, I guess, speaking the engineer language to engineers to introduce ambiguity as a way of getting them to embrace the idea that there's not just one answer all the time, that there's just one answer based upon the limits of our knowledge or perspective that operating with another set of knowledge or perspectives introduces other answers. You know what I mean? And it yes. feels like engineering science is, as you said, intersecting and interfacing with philosophy and social science to create new opportunities for understanding beyond that which was possible when we were in our own individual silos. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the things I find is I, when I'm working with very data-driven uh, black and white thinkers is I have to quickly help them see why should they care about people? Right. Uh, I, I, I tease my husband I 
<laughs> why should what? I care about people? I'm like, I don't know. You know right. They're, they're around a lot. You know, like, you know, I don't know if you've noticed that they tend to be, you know, here in the organization. <laughs> <laughs> my, my husband is regularly will say, you know, I don't like people or I'd love my job so much if I didn't have to work with others. And some, so many have this mindset of, well, just leave me alone and let me do my job. Let's get the process done. And uh, why, why is somebody, why is there drama? There doesn't need to be drama. Let's just focus on the work. And, and so then I'll ask him, you know, how's that working for you? <laughs> Do you build him? Is, is this like, did you give him the leadership crystal? Has he set no. to accelerate to? Oh, four, one, one, three, yeah. two, one. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. actually we, we trade cause I coach him and then he's my IT support and he's my Excel spreadsheet master. Well, there we go. It sounds so like there a perfect marriage. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, but I, I help him see if you're just going to say, well, I'm direct, take it or leave it a lot of people are going to leave it. Right. And then where does that leave you with getting the task done? You've got to pay attention to the people side. So it, to the end that it's going to help you get things done well, get them done faster. You're not going to have to keep having a revolving door of, of people who come and go on your team because they're not happy. And, and so once I can, get them on the same page of the people matter because they're at the end of the day, the ones who are going to help you get your stuff done. Then I've got their attention. Has your, has your husband uh, seen 2001, a space odyssey or Terminator? There will come a day when the technology will ask the same question. Why do we need people? Right. (laughs) (laughs) We really, why are they, why are we bothering with them? They seem to be really unpredictable, emotional, and complicated and just be easier if we just kind of got rid of them all and clean, you know, clean, you know, clean the deck, so to speak, and, and make life a lot easier to manage. Oh, heavens. You keep saying, you know, you've said you didn't really like the science fiction yet. We've been talking about spaceships. Well, you you've gone to. I, 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 <laughs> the Batman secret lab chair is kind of put me in the mindset. But I do think, you know, in terms of you know, science fiction, and this is, you know, I'm going to make a connection here with it. Science fiction providing a future that is not set in stone, but possible. And leadership coaching also about trying to create a future, which is not set in stone, but possible if the decisions people are making now make it a possible outcome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, yeah, you know, the, that the, the future is ours to make based on the decisions we make today. Yes. And leadership coaching, it seems, is about how do we make the best decision, not just ourselves, for ourselves, but in consideration with others around us. Yes, absolutely. And really, I want to work with people who want to be empowered and and the ones who want to play victim and give me all the reasons why they can't be effective in their job or they don't have this or that or the right team or the right leaders. Like, okay, then you can just sit there and wallow in your misery and there's nothing I can do for you. But people who are like, there's got to be a better way or look at the workplace changing or, you know, there's so much in the news right now about the great resignation and, and they're oversimplifying it because just from a sheer numbers standpoint, Gen X and millennials make up like there's three Gen Xers and millennials to every four baby boomers. 
So even if it weren't for, you know, all the COVID and the remote workplace, we'd still be having huge issues with, with staffing and recruiting. And I've been saying for years that all these companies who've treated their people like you should be grateful you have a job right. are now ruining <laughs> that culture they've created because people don't want to work there, don't have to work there, and they're leaving in droves. Yeah, and it does, it does raise, I'm just writing this down because it's a great phrase, Going from you should be grateful you have a job to we should be grateful we have these people. Yes. You know, how do we become grateful as an organization, which I think is really at the foundation of employee experience is this idea of being grateful for the people we have and welcoming them with a culture that allows them to give themselves and their gifts to each other. Yes. Yes, people want, even from engineers to sociologists, people want to be acknowledged and appreciated. Do engineers have emotions? Yes, yes, they do. They do. Oh, see, we learned something today. They do, mm-hmm. and, and uh, they tend to not tap into them without help. And so even those who seem like the, the hardest <laughs> edged people, they, they are getting triggered, but they don't usually think about it in those terms. And that's why it's so hard to read them. I'm also kind of fascinated by, you know, you worked with the IRS and a national science foundation, which as a person in academia, the NSF is just kind of like, I mean, I don't know, like this thing that exists out there that I know nothing about. I don't know who's there. I, I know, I know they, they turn people down for grants. Um, that's like my perception <laughs> of the NSF is like, there's this a body that just tells, you no a lot and seems to be indecipherable, insurmountable and, you know, best left untouched or alone, which I'm sure is it's more than that. So oh, yes. what, what was it working with both the national science foundation and the IRS? Because do people work at the IRS? Are there people there? It seems like there, there are, <laughs> there are. And that's just computers. Um, Yeah. So IRS, I worked with them when they, several years ago, I think it was like 2008, 2009. uh, They were rated like number 230 something out of 300 as far as best places to work in the government. And they said, we need Help. I'm just kind of curious. Like, like <laughs> I mean, I don't know anything about the IRS other than I just got a letter from them saying I owe them money. But right. like, who was rating? I mean, imagine that. Who was rating below them? <laughs> right, right. And uh, when you think about the people who work at the IRS, we've got lots of accountants, lots of you know economists. You've got a lot of IT people, and I mean, it's it's this big organization of of very task focused black and white thinkers um you also have the uh the auditors the fraud squad and um i worked with some former green berets who had gone from interrogation of oh, criminals great. to now fraud squad on the irs and so uh, I've, a very dear friend of mine and I got pulled in to help change the culture. And so we taught this group of, of senior leaders 
how to go from former Green Beret interrogator to being curious and being coach-like. It was an internal coach certification training. And it was so amazing to actually teach them how to motivate people in, in a inspiring ways rather than punitive ways. And, and over a nine-month period, just the, the change that we were able to see and how they treated others and how people responded to them was incredible. That is, I work at a school primarily for accountants. So my, my, the college I work at, <clears throat> a lot of students majoring in accounting, a lot of students majoring in audit. And one of the things that I, especially on the audit side, I talk with my students about is how people-oriented audit ultimately is. Yes, there is a lot of forensics. You have to look at spreadsheets and numbers, but ultimately you have to interact with people to carry out whatever audit you did, whether you're an internal audit team, an external audit team that's coming into a company to review its books, or a you know, like the IRS looking at uh, personal finances and taxes as well, that all these positions, even IT, very people-oriented. You know, oddly enough, no matter where you go, you got to deal with people. Yep. There's you know. no avoiding that. It's a matter of how much interfacing you have with people, but you're absolutely right. And National Science Foundation, so I would that we could talk for hours on you talk about cultural differences within an organization. It's absolutely fascinating. And they, but yes, so you've got a lot of people saying no a lot of the time, but then you've also got people advocating for their particular fields of study. Sure. And that's right. where I saw people skills being essential because I've got somebody who's in academia, who's an expert with a certain kind of geology, who right. then is trying to get more funding than somebody over here in um, in sociology wanting right. to do those studies, and they can't get on the same page because they're so late, so uh, narrowly focused on. Well, I want to fund my stuff, and and to then be able to teach them how do you listen and how can you put your own agenda aside to hear other you know reasons for why we need to do different kinds of studies and and be able to like impartially look at that data right. and decide how to allocate funds. If huh. you don't know how to get buy-in, which is a code word for working with people, right. you're, it doesn't matter how good you are in your field of expertise, people are not going to listen to you. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And for those who are listening, who have no idea what we're talking about, the NSF, I mean, NSF is one of, if not the largest granting organizations or agencies in the federal government for academics who are doing, you know, different kinds of research. Uh, that's why it's called the National Science Foundation. But as you said, from geology or quote unquote natural sciences to social sciences, to humanities, to, you know, all these different areas and people are not only competing across discipline or different science areas, but then across discipline within science areas and then within disciplines across different you know, areas of theory, you know, you know, so I'm a this theorist versus you're a that theorist within sociology. And we're going to try to kill each other over, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of budget. Right. Essentially. And so, it, you know, the, 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 the weeds of this, the inner machinations on the NSF, 
you know, how to get them to work together seems to be like it'd be a really challenging uh, problem to work on. Yes. I, I, yes. And, and just like with any kind of organization there, they, there's a mindset of, well, this kind of science is more important than that kind of science. Right. And we see that in a lot of uh, corporate entities, right? Where, okay, it's a new fiscal year. We're deciding how to allocate the budget. And well, you know, what we're much more important than over there. And in fact, I see that a lot of the times where we have uh, budget allocations, how much money are we going to spend on training these managers? Oh, well, you know, training's a nice to have. We need the money more over here. Right. We need to hire more personnel. Well, have you considered that if you were to properly train your leaders and managers that maybe you wouldn't need more people because you could internally run things more efficiently. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see the mindset of how people prioritize those resources and anybody listening to me right now, it doesn't matter where you work at some point in your career, you're going to have to fight for what you're passionate about and where you see that resources are needed. And until you can think about people and how to resonate with them and get your point across, you're going to not get those resources because somebody else who knows how to do those skills, are gonna, they're going to get it. Kind of reminds me, when I was talking with my youngest daughter about, you know, if you kept your room more clean, then you'd be able to find stuff easier. <laughs> and she rolls her eyes and like flops on her bed. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the people you talk to flop on their bed or roll their eyes, but it almost feels like the same. Do you know if you trained your people better, they might be more, pro, you know, uh, proficient or proficient, you know, pro proficient or productive in their work. You might have to hire fewer people. I mean, it's like this kind of clear line between mm. if you keep your room clean, you'll find your stuff easier. And if you train people better, they'll be more productive. Do you find that um, both being a mother and talking with your children helps your leadership and the other way that being a leadership coach helps parents? I'm kind of curious about that connection oh, between the two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, um, and it's funny because there are times where as a mom, I am, I'm very coach-like and ask, I can ask questions about what's getting in the way of you, you know, cleaning your room or... Uh, not wanting to eat vegetables or whatever it might be. Um, and then there are other times where, you know, as a parent, you just have to be directive. And, and I'd say the same is true with leaders. There, there are some teams that are going to lend themselves to being more trusted and being more empowered to take things and run with them. And some of the people, I, some of my clients get frustrated because they try to do that with teams who aren't ready to have that level of trust yet. Right. It's not a, well, I tried this and it didn't work. It's, well, are your people proficient? Did they have the skills and knowledge to be able to do what it was you were asking them? Or maybe those people needed a little bit. We talked about this a little while ago that maybe they needed a little bit more handholding at the beginning until they get it. And then you can empower them to take it and, and go. And so it's, it's all about like, there's no one size fits all approach when I'm as a parent or as a leader it's what is needed right now and how do I need yeah. to adjust my style to meet my people where they're at? 
it makes me think, and I was, you know, you, you mentioned this, and I was going to ask about it. To what extent do professional cultures dictate different kinds of responses? We've been talking narrowly about engineers, but then we started moving in other areas, and they all have in common this quote unquote quantitative data driven, task oriented, uh, you know, resistance to engaging with people kind of approach. Mm -hmm. But they're all different, right? And so this like yes. children are all different. And so how we adjust. How, how you adjust your coaching approach, whether you or the people within your organization, to both the particularities of the organization, the profession, and the people, and constantly making these, these decisions about how we're going to engage with this set based on their needs and the particularities of the situation. Yeah, so I um, actually... Was that it? I think it was last summer. I did some work with the Red Cross, okay. and that organization is full of volunteers. So you've got full time employees who are managing people who volunteer, and so you you can't be too directive, or they're just right. gonna they have no stake in the game, you know, to stay. And then you have uh, most of these people are very people centric. They got into this because right. they want to help when people are going through crisis. And what I found in that culture is you have people who they all, it's all about the harmony in the workplace. It's all about having the good relationships to the point where then sometimes deadlines get missed or we don't make a decision because we're trying to get right. consensus. I hate, yeah. You know, That's a trigger for me right there, by the way. Yeah. Because it's the same thing in academia, you know, yes. I, 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 I was president of an organization that was volunteer based and, you know, I, I kind of made people, their jaws drop. I said, well, you can vote no. And if more people vote yes, then we'll do it. And they were just not used to going forward with decisions when somebody had an objection. <laughs> right. Like, the reason the government doesn't work is because of the because of the filibuster. You know, I mean, so we're not going to sit here and let one person filibuster. We don't need to all agree. We, no. It's OK. <laughs> you, you yes. can vote no, it's fine. I'll still like you. But we're you know, if more people vote yes and vote no. We're going to go ahead and do this. And it's important when you are making decisions to set up what kind of criteria is going to be used. And, you know, are we, are we trying to shoot for consensus or are we trying to shoot for a majority or are we, or are we just giving information and somebody is going to unilaterally make the decision? And, you know, it's funny, I used to have a bias. I, I do a lot of emotional intelligence work and there's an, uh, assessment I really like using. And I was doing a, a ton of debriefs on these assessments for, um, it was like an open enrollment class. So I had people from all kinds of industries. And I saw, you know, there's this one section that looks at um, your interpersonal relationships and your empathy. And I came across this batch of people who scored so low I, and I immediately found myself judging, like, oh, my goodness, who, how could you be in this leadership position when you have yeah. no empathy and no interpersonal skills and, and you've self-identified this? And, uh, and then it was funny because I, I then stopped what I was doing and looked back at these people and where they worked. They were all Department of Defense. 
And <laughs> I, I, I laughed out loud and I thought, you know, can you see our, you know, in a, a military situation where lives are on the line, somebody stopping and saying, OK, we're not going to proceed until we all have agreement. Right. Like, you know, that, that would not work at all. Like you need there are environments where you need someone who's going to very quickly assess and make decisions and people who need to follow orders, even if they personally don't agree or don't even like the person, um, which then brings me to another topic of people who are former military integrating into civilian life. And and vice versa, you don't see it go the other direction very often. But I, I find when you come from one particular culture with a certain need of a type of personality, it can be really hard to go to an organization where they do things and value things very differently. Right. I was just recently working on a volunteer project with NATO and it was interesting because we had academics, we had military, we had military from around the world. <laughs> we had civilian, basically civilian contractors who were working with NATO as you know employed, but not part of the military. We had branches of the military. And you know, looking at what you were just talking about, how these different cultures come together, it was an interesting thing to observe and to try to understand. How is it that people can come together? And I think one of the things that kept everyone the glue was a shared purpose, right? Yes. You know, what's, you know, this is an overused word now, but well, like, what, like, why are we, what's, you know, Simon Sinek start with why? Like, why are we even doing this in the first place? Are we committed to something that we're trying to achieve, which is, which we can't do on our own that is greater than ourselves individually? Yes. And that is the secret to getting buy-in is when you find yourself at odds with somebody in your organization, it's step backwards, keep going backwards until you get to that fundamental agreement on the purpose or the mission or this, whatever it is that, that people are passionate about and brought them to the same organization. And then once you can find alignment there, it's okay, we agree on the what, the disagreements, the how. And so let's, but it's a lot easier to find that way forward when you have that's the foundation of, and this is what we have in common. Yeah. I, you know, I, and I, again, it sounds trite. It sounds, you know, overly simplistic, but sometimes the answer is kind of simple, right? Mm -hmm. It is about people. It is about giving people, acknowledging them, supporting them, um, making them feel wanted and about helping them achieve something greater than themselves yeah. and as a leader, right? What are you doing to facilitate that in your, in whatever role you have, whether middle management, whether a project lead or whether, you know, a CEO or C-suite. Yes. Yes. And it's also about valuing other perspectives, Realizing that you think differently than the person sitting across from you, but acknowledging that, okay, maybe the person in front of me is very people focused and I've written them off in the past as being foofy. foofy. But right. if, I, if they can help me think like a people person and I can help my colleague think like a task focused person, somewhere in the middle is some genius. Right. Yeah. I one of the things I talk about a lot is start with assets. 
don't start with deficits. You know, mm-hmm. what are the assets that people are bringing with them and figure out ways to use those creatively to overcome the barriers that you're facing and then turn those ideas into action, right? Yep. You know, this is like the, this is the point is how do you start with the assets? What are the assets? And this is like a lot of the work that you do. And I know people can go to your website and and do different inventories to find out what are my strengths. Don't look at, well, you're really low on this. What are they really high on? Or what what, what ways can we use that to complement somebody else who might be a little bit different than, you know, than, yes. than while you're scoring? How can we create a culture in which we embrace those differences, that diversity, and also align that with a shared mission to what we're trying to accomplish. Yes. And one thing that really got me hooked on coaching is, so I am a very logical, task-focused, action-focused person. And uh, from my family of origin, I am a people pleaser. And, Uh, and, And that goes deep. And I found it as I got more mature and especially moving up in different uh, roles, it was really getting in my way of, you know, trying to make everybody happy at what cost. And usually it was my mental sanity. It was my health. It might've even been my career trajectory because I was so focused on trying to keep everybody happy. And I had a coach one time work with me on a particular situation and help me see how I could leverage my people pleaser to actually be able to say no. Right. And when I, when she was able to help me think of, okay, so if you're pleasing these people over here, well, then let's talk about the other people you might be letting down because you're so focused on keeping these other people happy, Including including myself. And so now I'm much more intentional about, who do I want to keep happy in this scenario and right. why? And then I'm going to have to say no to, in order to say yes. And, and boy, people ask me all the time, like, how do you, how are you the mother of five children in a blended family with a Rottweiler and my, you know, engineering husband and I volunteer in our community. And it's like, how do you do it all? And you know what? I don't, I mean, I, right. I, you, can you have it all? Yes, but never all at the same time. So there are weeks where like today's my daughter's birthday and oh. I am going to be, Having my mom hat is my priority today because I want my daughter, especially after I've been sick with COVID and she's not really had a lot of quality time with me lately, that's going to be the priority. And that's going to mean perhaps saying no to a client that I'm not available today or that I you know, can't do this. It might be that we have macaroni and cheese for dinner because I chose to spend my afternoon instead playing dolls with my daughter. You know, but I I don't want things to just happen because I got carried away with that. I want to be really mindful of what is my priority today. And tomorrow it might be work or it might be a certain project at work. Right. And and then the house, the laundry is going to get behind and, you know, or there are going to be days where nobody has anything to wear and laundry has got to be the priority. It, you know, and I think if people could be more thoughtful about that. And that, you know, there's no right or wrong, but it's always thinking about what needs to be my priority right now and focusing on that, not having guilt about the other things. And then later that afternoon, or maybe the next day, it's going to be something else. 
one of my favorite sayings uh, from another organization is uh, first things first, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. What's the first thing I, you know, of all the things that I need to do, what's the first thing I need mm-hmm. to do? And going back to the coaching discussion, even the children discussion, the first thing I have to do is think about what I'm doing and what I need. <laughs> and also what are the needs of those around me? And how do I manage and balance those in a thoughtful way that takes into account all of them while not necessarily getting hung up on what's the perfect because you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And it's this constant process of of trying, recalibrating, checking in, engaging, changing, moving forward. Yes. And and I think one of the... Um casualties of working from home is we've lost a lot of our thinking time. It oh, used yeah. to be that we could drive into work or Metro or however you get there and have some time to think about your day and what are the priorities and what do I need to do first? But when you're getting kids off to school or, you know, walking the dog and getting, and then, Oh, I have a nine o'clock and you walk into your office or some people don't have a separate office space, right? right they just right. pick their chair and in immediately you're expecting your brain to just hundred percent switch right. gears and you have, and then you're just diving into work. And once that happens, you've lost that window to be intentional about what is first today. And so that's something I encourage my clients to do that if you are working from home uh, to, you know, have some kind of a pause, whether it's, okay, I'm not going to turn on my computer until I've sat in my chair and taken a deep breath and been intentional about what I want to accomplish or take a walk around the block. I love my dog because that really helps me. I have to take care of his needs and that gets me out of my office and outside, even in the blistering heat. <laughs> and, and I have, I create that space to still have that intentionality. Well, this is why we need the ambition leadership uh, crystal. So that you can take that moment to center yourself. So every day before you start your day, before you go on to make a big decision, before you have a big event, or just even you need to take a time out, you can grab that crystal, that you know, ambition, leadership, leadership crystal, and center yourself. Oh, how how about we just uh, use a mouse, right? Whatever whatever transitional (laughs) object you need, you know, it it works. You know, so if you need a transition object, you know, it's like dealing with kids again. You know, if you're moving from one thing to another, you need an object to carry with you as a transition object to make you feel more secure, more comfortable. If a mouse works, great. (laughs) Or if it's a hydro flask or your coffee mug that says uh, world's greatest boss, whatever works for you. Just, uh, just, just, just find something to hold on to. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. I'll let you get ready for your daughter's uh, doll plane and, and the party. Thank you. Thank you. It'll be an awesome day. All right. Great. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. We'd like to thank Jennifer Chapman from Ambition Leadership for talking with us about the unique challenges and opportunities in coaching STEM leadership, the dangers of the foofy, and trying not to career coach like, well, Bobby Knight. 
You can learn more about ambition leadership, Jennifer's work, and how to get your leaders ready for leadership in our show notes. As always, we'd love to get in conversation with you. So you can hop in the conversation on our LinkedIn page or shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And here's what we want to know this week. Do you like or dislike the foof? Hmm. Hmm. It's a good question. But also what leadership challenges are uniquely situated to your work or profession? What new insights might you bring to the table around these ideas? And finally, how do you keep the passion in your work, especially when times get tough? So as always, right, shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and or join us again on our LinkedIn page. And as always, without you, this podcast would not be possible. I mean, that's not true. We can have a podcast without you, but it wouldn't be as fun. So Sounds thank sad. you. It does sound sad. So thank you for making this podcast more enjoyable for us to bring to you. And recently I've been had the chance to talk with a lot of folks who are EXD listeners about how they're enjoying the podcast, about what they want to see on future episodes and what they like to keep around. So thanks for reaching out. And as always, you can reach out to us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And if you're looking to increase your profile, you have a guest idea, you want to sponsor an episode, by all means, reach out to us with that information as well and to support the podcast financially and to help us defray the cost of bringing this fantastic content to you on a i don't know bi-weekly basis make sure mm-hmm. you go over to our website and buy us a coffee and as always folks from the bottom of our hearts be safe be kind be well and please be here for the next experience by design bye